Hey, hey, welcome Disability Law Show. Good to have you along for another episode and this hour. Hope you can hang in for the entire thing. By the way, anytime you want to contribute to the show, the easiest way is to send us along an email, and that is help at disabilityrights.ca. Tamara Gopian is here, courtesy of Sanfiru Tamark and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. And on the other side of the hour, anytime, Tamara's got a wonderful crew behind her as well, always ready to uh, to answer your questions if something comes to mind. Same email, uh, email address. You can also call one 821 5900 and the option of mydisabilityquestions.com. There's a free website you can use as well to ask your questions. We'll get to some of those here in a few moments, but tomorrow we always get uh, stretched and warmed up, so to speak, proverbially, with your, uh, your week that was, the case of the day, pal. What do you got going on? Well, this week I've been spending some time drafting a legal claim that I wanted to talk to our listeners about because it highlights a couple of uh, points on things we talk about on occasion, but maybe not as specifically as maybe we should. Uh, and it's about the timeframes around actually making applications for short-term and long-term disability. And so this has been my deep dive this week with this particular client. I'm obviously going to, to protect her privacy, but I thought her fact pattern was really, really interesting. So she's 54, John. She's worked for the past decade as a rehabilitation assistant for one of the facilities, actually, that insurance companies use quite often and send in claimants to. Uh, in any event, she, she supports the therapist, the physiotherapy, occupational therapy, this sort of thing, and obviously with the client base that they have at this particular location. And so last summer, she starts to ex- experience a number of different symptoms. Uh, the most prevalent was like widespread body pain, uh, lots of fatigue, um, having some, you know, female plumbing issues, so to speak, just a whole host of things that she wasn't really sure what was going on. Initially, her doctors thought, well, I think you might have anemia, which is an iron deficiency, and that may account for what's happening in terms of the fatigue and so on. So she starts to take some iron supplements. That doesn't seem to be solving the problem. And so, of course, the doctors go on this journey of trying to figure out what is happening, lots of blood work. Um, she passes out at some point. It's, it's, it's just on and on, John. It was terrible, blood transfusions, this sort of thing. Wow. And so her doctors initially put her off work for a couple of weeks, and then that leave of absence or medical leave continued to be extended, and it went on for a number of months. And so in that time frame, she did advise her employer. Employer says, okay, you should apply for short-term disability. She does. Um, and she has a little bit of coverage through the employer. And then the employer says you should apply for EI sickness benefits. This is the one where it's a government-based uh, program. It's available for individuals who can't work as a result of their health, and it provides you benefits uh, for about 15 weeks uh, in conjunction potentially with short-term disability benefits. It depends on the policy. Long story short, employer never tells her to actually apply for long-term disability. She, she actually didn't even know if she had coverage for long-term. And so her EI runs out, and then she initiates the long-term disability claim. By then, though, she is several months past the start of her disability leave, and uh, she submits her application, let's say, seven to ten days late. Okay? okay. Seven days, John. Not months, days late. Yeah, seven to ten long. days late. Yeah. Not long in the grand scheme of things. And what does the long-term disability insurer do? They have one phone call with her. One. That's it. They ask her, you know, how she's doing. 
She says that there, she thinks she's going to be diagnosed with lupus or fibromyalgia, both of which are very significant health issues, really difficult to treat, very persisting, pervasive, certainly would establish that she's totally disabled from working in this rehab facility, which was her own occupation. And the call lasts for maybe less than five minutes. And then they deny her claim because she applied seven days late. That's it. Full stop. <laughs> so she's looking at this thing and she doesn't understand. And so then she goes back and she realizes that she'd actually asked for the forms for long term from her employer um, weeks and weeks before. And the employer actually took a long time to actually send the stuff that she needed to complete and then submit to the insurance company. So she offers this as an explanation to the insurance company. Her employer offers this as an explanation to the insurance company. And what does the insurance company do? They say no again on appeal. So lo and behold, she obviously retains me, um, you know, and I'm starting the process of the legal claim. Uh, Of course, because look, we know the appeal isn't going to work. I I give her a lot of credit for trying because, you know, they did invite her to say, hey, can you provide an explanation for the delay, which she did. Um, and they still would not be deterred. And I said to her, look, they're not going to be deterred until they have that legal claim on their, at, at their doorstep. And I'm talking to their lawyer about how seven days is going to be forgiven by, by, by court. The, the courts have forgiven months and months of delays if there's a reasonable explanation for someone to not have applied in time within those strict terms of the disability policy. And she had a very good reason for it. Number one, her doctors weren't sure what were go- what was going on. She was incapacitated in certain periods while she was off. And to boot, she had an employer who wasn't as responsive, as responsive as they should have been. And, you know, did right by her by explaining that to the insurance company. And so I think, my suspicion is this, John, this is going to resolve fairly quickly, okay? I think their lawyer is going to see what I see, which is this isn't something that's the that's going to be an appropriate basis to deny her claim. She has obviously since then been diagnosed with lupus, so the diagnosis is now available medically. It's clear what, you know, what was attributable in terms of her disability and why she was having all of these symptoms. And, and I'm glad for that because she's at least on the path of trying to get her health under control. But in that time, of course, she should be getting long-term disability benefits. And so I thought there was a couple of really good takeaways from all of this. For one, yes, there are very strict timeframes to apply for benefits. Uh, usually for long-term disability, it is within a couple of months of the end of the qualifying period. What does all that mean? When you go off on disability, there's a hold period before you're entitled to long-term. Usually that lines up with short-term disability benefits or EI sickness, but either way, that hold period can be anywhere between 17 and 26 weeks, which is almost six months, right? Uh, Four to six months. So you have to make your LTD application within a couple of months, sometimes weeks, of the end of that four to six month period. I know it's complicated, folks. This is why I'm talking about it do it right away. Don't wait. Don't even wait to the end. Just if it's clear that you're going to go beyond that four to six month period for disability benefits, initiate the long-term claim. The worst that can happen is the insurance company says, no, 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 you know what? It's too soon yet. We're not going to look at this just yet or um, you know, make some other decision on short-term that may impact long-term. But at least they can't say to you that you're late or that you never applied. 
because I think that that is really critical for individuals to do is to get that application out there. The other part of this, of course, is something we do co co comment on quite a bit, which is just because you have a series of symptoms and no diagnosis doesn't mean that you don't have a valid disability claim. That's right. So any resistance you may get from an insured suggester, who, by the way, has no medical background, saying to you, well, you don't have the diagnosis, you're not sick enough, that doesn't fly with the courts either. So they will. the courts have validated that if you've got a series of symptoms that are preventing you from working, then you should be entitled to disability benefits on that basis. And the last thing I'll say about all this is that that idea of forgiveness, there is a concept in law called relief from forfeiture. This idea is developed across our country in all the jurisdictions that we work in, and it allows individuals to start a legal claim and ask the court, you know, please excuse the technical, you know, delay that I had with my application or something that I may have missed, uh, but overall allows the court to get past that to actually look at the merits of the disability claim. And I think that is really the key problem here with this insurance company, John, is that they didn't look at the disability claim and the validity of it, how important that was to look at. They made no decision on that, no adjudication, no review. They didn't really even ask her about her health or get any sort of information about it. They simply relied on this technical decline to say no. And what I want our listeners to understand is that if there is a basis for the insurance company to use this technical nonsense, they will. And then you're sort of left wondering, okay, now what? I don't want to see people fall into these traps, but even if they do, this is what we're here for, to help people move their claims along and try and get a resolution that really they probably otherwise will not be able to get once they get sort of a persnickety adjuster who's very <laughs> focused on you know, these kinds of details that really don't matter. It, don't, it doesn't matter, uh, at least not in this limited time frame when you look at the overall disability picture. And uh, bonus points for getting the word persnickety into our uh, opening salvo. Very, uh, very nice tomorrow. <laughs> I haven't heard that, uh, have that for many years. But, you know, it, it's, it's funny that 10 days, ooh, big deal. Sometimes medicine takes time, to your point. Sometimes doctors don't know right away, and you're going to miss that short little guideline. And that's not too much. I mean, that's uh, totally understandable why you scoffed at that, right? I did. And I think that what was, what was really eye-opening in this particular client situation, John, was what I described around the significant health interventions that yeah. were required in that time frame, right? So she's hospitalized, she needs a blood transfusion. Um, you know, there, there have been cases where, you know, people have had significant delay in applying for disability benefits because they are incapacitated or not able to, perhaps they can't formulate the thought process in requiring to do that or get the doctor to complete the forms that are required. But at the end of the day, insurance companies are almost obsessed to a fault with the terms and conditions of their policies, which by the way, they draft. And they will use it as a sword, not a shield. They will use it as a means of denying otherwise valid disability claims. And what I'd like to just get out there to people uh, is that we're here to advise, we're here to support, we're here to represent individuals when it's clear that the insurance company should have approved and paid this disability benefit by now. And with that, we'll take our first break, get to more of your emails. Meadow, thank you so much for uh, contributing to the show uh, today. We'll get to yours very shortly, and you can do that anytime as well. They get answered, of course, outside the hour of the show. Uh, help at disabilityrights.ca and the number one eight five five eight two one. 
5900 will continue with the Disability Law Show. Hang on. All right, we're back. Thank you so much for hanging in. Disability Law Show. John Scholes here, just uh, doing the easy part. Tamara Gopian, courtesy Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP, is doing all the heavy lifting, as she uh, she always does on every show, answering your questions, collecting the emails and other correspondence to bring them on air and get some answers and educate you as well. A couple different ways to do that. There's always the phone number after the show, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca, another place to ask questions anonymously with a searchable database. So maybe your question has been uh, put through the ringer before. That's mydisabilityquestions.com. And to learn a lot more when we're not doing the show, a website that was put together a few weeks ago to educate you, pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. Check that out when you got some time as well. Okay. Uh, I mentioned getting right into the, uh, the email tomorrow, which we're, uh, we're going to do here. We've got a pile to go, but we're going to start with Meadow, as I mentioned, going into the break. says, guys, hello. I've been on long-term disability for a long time now. Today, HR from my company called to inform me that I would be terminated as of today and that my extended medical coverage would be discontinued. They also sent me a letter laying out the details, claiming my employment was frustrated. They also offered to continue my health benefits if I sign a release by next week. I'd like to know my rights and to get legal advice on what to do before signing any such letter. What do you think, Tamar? Yes, Meadow, get legal advice before you sign any such <laughs> letter. Look, I, I'm, I'm so glad she reached out, John, because this is really an area where you can see the overlap between disability Right? She's been on long-term disability for a long time. And an employer who is deciding to end the employment relationship, perhaps rightly or wrongly, and f- trying to figure out for Meadow, well, what do I do now? Uh, and perhaps this came somewhat unexpectedly. So we, this is why we practice in employment law and disability law. You can see the intersection so clearly in these kinds of emails. And so why I think it's important for Meadow to get legal advice is because First and foremost, the moment that you sign a document, any kind of release to either the employer or the disability insurer, you are giving up rights. And you have to make sure that before you sign anything, you do actually have some legal advice. You don't want to be signing away rights without understanding what that means or what that looks like. It could be that Meadow ends up signing whatever document or whatever it is, but at least allow myself, someone on my team to take a look and get the full picture so we can provide some advice and you know what you are doing in these circumstances. And oftentimes, John, I see that employers won't even offer like the the compensation for even a paid consultation or something else that you need to do to get that advice because they actually just want people to feel pressured to sign these things and sign their rights away without getting the right advice. And that's why they put these deadlines. It's it's a pressure tactic. And the deadline is arbitrary. I mean, my question to the employer is why now? Like if she's been off for so long, why now? And why do they need a response in a week? And I think it is very much to the point of having to pressure Meadow in order to give up potentially some employment rights. And so I don't know a lot, obviously, from her email about what happened before she went on leave or frankly, even how long she's been on leave. But I can tell you that there is a concept in Ontario employment law called frustration of contract. It is not a set in stone type idea in the sense that it's a legal principle and it can be triggered either by the employer or the employee as to if the disability is preventing Meadow from returning back to her employment. 
but it has to be based on medical. It's not necessarily based on time. That's what I mean that it's not set in stone is in it's not like, well, you've been off for a year. So it's frustration of contract. You've been off for two years is frustration of contract. Generally, I would think individuals who are still employed and on a medical leave past that two year mark may actually see their employer come to them and make this assertion of frustration. But like I said, it really is based upon medical information and what your own doctors are saying, Meadow, about whether or not you can actually go back to your own employment. And if the medical information suggests that there's no reasonable likelihood for you to return, then the employer could potentially have a valid uh, argument on frustration of contract. Mm -hmm. But with that, in Ontario, there are minimum protections. If you are an employee who's protected under the Employment Standards Act, then Employment Standards Act says you get certain weeks of pay for the years of service that you had, including the years that you've been off on disability. So this is why I think these kinds of emails are so important, John, is because we want to understand and know how long did Meadow work at this employer? What was her income level? Is there a reasonable likelihood for her to return? Is the employer offering any compensation? Should they be? All she said to us is that they've agreed to uh, continue her health benefits if she signs a release. Well, perhaps that's not enough compensation for someone like her. The continuation of benefits maybe looks good on paper. You think, okay, well, I've got ongoing health issues. You know, I, I want to be able to go to the dentist and get my yep. medication covered and maybe get some therapy covered. But if that's not sufficient and doesn't align with what the Employment Standards Act says, then guess what? My advice to Meadow is going to be no, don't sign that letter or release. And, you know, we should be getting involved on her behalf to advocate for something that makes sense. But again, a lot of it will come down to those details around is she protected by the Employment Standards Act? How, how long are her years of service? Where is she at from a health perspective? Is there, is there any likelihood for her to return? And so this is why we offer the kind of um, advice and information to people that we do and the consultations that we offer because we want to make sure that people are making the right choices when something is being imposed upon them like Meadow and the employer saying, okay, you know, we're now essentially saying termination. And with that, we're going to move on. I want to make sure you still have the number to call any time and even send along an email. Maybe it'll appear on a, uh, a future show as well, right? Help at disabilityrights.ca. And to reach Tamar and her team, 1-855-821-5900. I did previously mention the website, mydisabilityquestions.com. There is no shortage of ways to contact uh, Tamar and the firm for sure. There's another one. And from it, we get this, uh, this question, Tamar. My insurance company is insisting on using their messaging portal to communicate. However... They've removed previous messages uh, exchanged over the term of my long-term disability claim. Can I request that they use my regular email for communication so that I have access to all of our communication? It seems like they are managing the communication so that I'm unable to access what has been exchanged. That sounds wrong. <sighs> it does sound wrong, doesn't it, John? It sounds wrong, but I'm not surprised by this. So there's one or two insurers that have moved to this kind of a system where everything is encrypted and their system will send the communication to the claimant, whether it be a letter or an email. And then you have to access it with like a special code and an email address. It's, it's somewhat um, tedious as opposed to it going straight unencrypted from the insurer to the claimant to their own email. 
And so why do they do this? Well, because they are, you know, big monster companies and they have regulators and the regulators don't want this private information, so to speak, to be out there in the internet world um, and readily accessible. So this is sort of lining up with other legislation around private medical information and so on. And so, yes, it's cumbersome. Yes, it can be really problematic because as this message describes to us, you know, the prior emails have been deleted, right? It doesn't keep a, a historical record of all the exchanges back and forth. And so what I would say is that you can certainly ask the insurer, hey, can you use my regular email? Send it to me in a different format. But unfortunately, you can't force them to use a different system. E even when I communicate with some insurers, I have to go through this system. And so what I need to do and what my assistant, love, my lovely assistant helps me with as well, is to download that information into either a PDF or a Word document, all sorts of tech stuff, so that we can secure it on our own si systems. They are safe, they are private, but at least they are not logged into the actual insurance company's encrypted program. And we've actually downloaded a copy. And that's really a, a practical solution or a workaround what, what this insurer is doing and what's being described. Even though, yes, it feels very wrong because then you don't have the paper trail. But here's the thing, John, if there is a disconnect between the insurer and the claimant, and it is to the point where we are going to get involved on behalf of the claimant and they become our client, I will be requesting a whole copy of that claims file, every single piece of paper. And usually I will get the full file. So even though it's being retained in this encrypted process and, and system, I am able to get access to that information on behalf of my clients. Now look, I'm not suggesting that that's the answer in every situation, which is why I was trying to give the practical advice around trying to download it or asking the insurer to send you maybe an additional copy to your own email. Uh, but at the end of the day, they have these systems for a reason. And as I said at the top of the show, insurance companies are very rigid. Adjusters are very rigid. They're, you know, almost like bots, right? They're told what to do. This is how they're supposed to do it. And they will not necessarily veer outside of the lines. And I just don't want to see this claimant getting frustrated about the means in which communication is being put to him or her by the insurer and more so just thinking about it practically as to how do I secure this information for myself so that I can then be responsive to the insurer when they reach out to me. That's it. There you go. Always uh, answered questions right there. Shauna is up next, by the way. I want to make sure you can uh, send them along an email as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And more contact would be mydisabilityquestions.com. We're going to roll on down to Shauna. I think we have enough time to get Shauna in for sure. Says, uh, hi, guys. I'm a nurse applying for long-term disability. I have vestibular dysfunction causing frequent falls and chronic severe migraines. I was also recently diagnosed with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue. I've done three rounds of physio. I see a chiropractor and osteopath regularly. I've developed anxiety and depression because I haven't had any improvement for over a year. I see a psychotherapist in hopes to learn coping strategies. I've uh, seen a neurologist, rheumatologist, ENT, and my GP, of course. I fear many of my symptoms are considered subjective since MRI, uh, CT, x-rays have all been negative. Do I have any chance of being approved for LTD? What can I do to improve my chances? This is all due to a virus I had back in July of 2022. 
I developed vestibular neuritis and the rest of my symptoms compounded. Wow, Sean is in a rough state. What do you think, uh, Tamar? John, I mean, this is, it reads like it would read for an application for disability benefits, right? I mean, it's it's this and this yeah. and this and this. And so, uh, look, I appreciate Shauna sharing all these details of her health history with us. She absolutely should be approved for long-term disability benefits. But she raises a really important point, which is all of the testing is showing negative. I can't point to anything tomorrow. Like, what's the insurance company going to look at? And so because it's so subjective, am I going to get resistance from the insurance company? And it could be that the answer to that is yes. Insurance companies like to see the documented evidence around what is happening medically, what those symptoms are, what's the treatment for those symptoms, and trying to chart a path from beginning to end. So if, you know, look at it from the adjuster's perspective, they'll do like a Google search on what her conditions are, and they'll look at these um, complicated neurological conditions, and they will see that there isn't necessarily a clear start, middle, and end to treating these kinds of conditions. And that is the antithesis, the opposite of what these adjusters want, because they want a clear ending so that they don't need to pay the LTD benefit past that point. So I think that what the tendency sometimes is with these adjusters is to deny these claims from the outset, from the start, to say, oh, well, we don't have enough medical here, there's insufficient evidence here, and therefore try and resist what will inevitably be a question and answer around, well, what's happening with Shauna and, and you know, are there ongoing symptoms? How is that being treated? When can we see the end of that? It just doesn't fit neatly in what insurance adjusters like to do with these types of claims. Mm-hmm. But you know what, John, let's, I want to make one or two more comments about uh, Shauna's email. So why don't we take our next break and then we'll pick it up after our break. We sure will. Shauna, stand by. We're going to answer the rest of your questions and for you as well. As we get into a break, I'll give you that contact information again. Maybe your email will appear on a future show. How about that? Help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number 1-855-821-5900. And anytime you have, of course, anonymous and free access to Pocket Disability Lawyer. Check that out when you got some time. It's pretty new and it's uh, it's pretty cool as well. We'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang on. And back, Disability Law Show. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. If this is your first time, we talk about the woes of dealing with disability insurers and the uh, the way to deal with that moving forward, whether it be uh, just information you gather online. A couple different ways you could do that. Uh, the best one, recent one, is pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. Check that out. I uh, know Tamar had a hand in putting that together. And Tamar is always here with a phone call as well, one Eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. She worked for the big bad insurance company, so she's uh, she's seen Oz behind the curtain, and she's ready to give you the information on such. We were talking um, talking about Shauna's email. Just a whole host of problems from psychotherapists to uh, rheumatologists, uh, ENTs. She's had uh, CRT, uh, CAT scans, MRIs, whole host of problems, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. Just uh, she's dealing with a ton of stuff. Uh, tomorrow, I want to pick up where you left off with Shauna. That'd be great. Absolutely, because she the, the core question she asked us, John, was how do I improve my chances to be approved for long-term disability given my whole health profile and given that I have you know these subjective symptoms? And I think you really picked up the elements of her email that I was going to focus on, which is the fact that she has many treatment providers, actually. She has seen specialists. She's seen both MDs and practitioners who specialize in these kinds of conditions and rallying their support medically 
in a document, in a report, multiple reports, is extremely helpful when you're trying to persuade the disability insurer that this is real, I'm experiencing this insurance company, and it is preventing me from working as a nurse. And, you know, nursing, John, is it, it's not one of these linear jobs, right, where you're just doing one task. Mm-hmm. It's multifactorial, right, lots of different requirements, depending on what kind of nursing uh, Shauna is doing. It certainly has some physical elements, some cognitive elements, right? You've got to, you know, think about it, concentrate, deal with patients. There's emotional elements, sympathy, empathy, these kinds of things. So it, it's one of these jobs where if the insurance company is looking at that first phase of disability, that own occupation period, they have to consider all of her job duties and they have to consider all of her health symptoms and limitations. So having each of these practitioners say, look, she she definitely is suffering from pain or this or that, uh, you know, and we are thinking it could be this or we are putting this particular treatment plan in place does validate the symptoms and offer the insurance company course of treatment. And I think that if you want to best position your disability claim when it is, you know, very much a subjective claim, so something that Shauna is reporting or multiple symptoms that she's reporting that are preventing her from working, having those doctors and practitioners validate those symptoms can go a long way to getting your disability benefits approved. And Shauna, if you don't get approved, call me, please. (laughs) I'm happy to help uh, because it's clear that she is definitely on a path, John, that it could be resisted by the disability insurer, but it shouldn't. And that legal claim can work magic in these kinds of situations and getting the benefits that she's owed. And again, moving forward, guys, anytime, that phone number, one 821 5900 is toll-free. Go ahead and use that. You know, a disability claim tomorrow caused by an injury or things that happen at work, uh, is this like a worker's comp or if your BC work safe claim required? Or can a person just go straight to disability benefits? they got to do some steps in between. What do you think? Yeah, so so we get a lot of questions about this, John, because it, it can happen quite a bit still that people are injured at work. Uh, and you're right, BC has WorkSafe um, and Alberta and Ontario, the other two provinces that we, we operate in, uh, have workers' compensation. All, all the same regime, all the same idea that if, as an employee, you are injured at work, uh, there is an element of compensation there from this uh, other you know, source, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term. In Ontario, uh, workers' compensation is separate from your employment, it's separate from the courts, It's they have their own system, their own tribunal, uh, they're self-regulated, uh, and so you do have to make a separate application to a workers' compensation to apply for those benefits. And so if you've been injured at work, what I would say to individuals is, hey, apply for it all. Like, why limit yourself? I think an application to workers' compensation, uh, you know, will allow you then to see through whether or not you're going to be approved. And if you are, whether there's anything further owing for short-term or long-term, apply for it all and then see sort of where the chips land, so to speak. Um, because the one area where I think we're, we're getting a lot of interplay is mental health conditions, John. So people who have been put through, you know, toxic work environment, uh, harassment at work, bullying at work, things that are happening in the work setting that then triggers uh, mental health conditions that arise, that require time away from work, that potentially persists through the short-term and long-term period. 
and insurance companies who say to these kinds of claimants, okay, we'll approve you or we're not going to approve you. This is a workers' compensation claim. And so I'd like to see that loop being closed with people who have these kinds of situations because the disability insurer has in their policy that they get a credit for anything that you might get from workers' compensation. So if you apply for workers' compensation and you're not approved for that, then you can resist the insurance company saying, well, we're not going to pay you because you should have been getting this from workers' compensation. You can then show them that there's this denial of workers' comp. And with workers' compensation, I was reading a couple months back, there was an article that said something like, and we may have actually even talked about it on, our, on one of our shows, John, something like 90% of mental health claims to workers' compensation is being denied. So like, there's a high rate of denial for yeah. mental health claims. And look, I, I don't know what the stats are for disability, but I suspect that there's a higher incident of denials of mental health claims on the disability side as well. And so you've got people who've got real health issues, cannot work as a result of their mental health, and I, not, I don't want to see anyone closing doors by not applying. This goes back to what I was saying at the start of the show. So the best advice I can give is to make those applications and then figure out if you're being denied, what recourse do you have? We at the firm don't work in the workers' compensation realm, uh, but we do obviously do a lot of disability claims that arise from work settings. And it's, it doesn't mean that one negates the other. So go ahead and apply. If you've got any further questions, don't, don't hesitate to contact myself or someone on our team. More than happy to speak, you, speak to you and talk you through what options you might have. Yeah, we'll take a uh, short break tomorrow, get into another email or two with the remaining time. You can always send one along to us. It may appear on a future show for sure. Help at disabilityrights.ca, the phone number if you want to have more of a lengthy conversation uh, privately with tomorrow or a member of her team, always ready to talk to you for sure. won't cost you anything to pick up a phone, right? one 821 5900 and you can also go to mydisabilityquestions.com to leave your questions there as well. We'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show in just a moment. Hang on. You bet we are back with the Disability Law Show. I'm John Scholes, always here, as is Tamara Gopian from San Firu to Markin LLP. Reach out to Tamara anytime, either before, during, or after you've uh, you've been dealing with that disability insurer. It doesn't matter. You just want to get some simple advice. Tamara's always there to provide exactly that. If your matter goes deeper, then always ready to help you in that regard. one 821 5900 email help at disabilityrights.ca and you can also use the website to get some information takes a couple minutes to go through it that is pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca check that out it's fairly new and uh, really robust as well okay beth is the next one up tomorrow let's get your email says guys i'm ready to you as i was watching the tv show yesterday we love beth uh regarding ltd when it is due to mental distress my LTD just started this month, and the insurance advisor contacted me saying I would be cut off right after some sessions with the occupational therapist. They got me, they got me, in order to get me back to work in eight weeks, tops. During the first session with the OT last week, she made an assessment to see my level of anxiety and depression. And she said I scored pretty high. The same assessment was done with my family doctor, and he got the same results. The scores were high. I do feel more anxiety as the days go by, and I'm not sure if they have the right to force me back to work on a given date. Also, my husband wants to decrease my stress level of the depression and anxiety, and he wants to take me to fly to another country for a week to change my scenery, you know, see if that helps. 
and I'm not sure if I can or even if I am allowed to do so, as the insurance wants to cut me off, and this may be a reason for them to do it. Could you please advise me on these situation or these situations? I greatly appreciate your advice. Uh, thank you, says Beth. What do you think? Aw, thanks, Beth. I, look, I, of course, I'm thrilled that she's watching the show, John. Uh, but this screams out to me one of our free consults, right? Uh, so don't hesitate, Beth, to, to actually set something up to, to talk through what's happening. But I'm going to do my best to try and address all of these uh, issues and questions that you have in your email. And I want to start with this idea of the insurance company forcing her back to work, John. They can't, okay? They, they just can't. They simply cannot force you to go back to work. You must, as a claimant follow your own medical advice, regardless of what their own insurance companies, doctors are saying, or therapists is saying, or what they've put you through. If your own practitioner is telling you, you are not ready to return, I wholeheartedly stand behind Beth and any other claimant saying, my doctor said, no, thanks very much insurance company. The problem with that though, of course, is that Beth is going to have to go through a period of time potentially without her benefits because insurers may then be emboldened by the rehab that they offered her and thinking that she's ready and good to go to return back to work. And that is really why they do these kinds of rehab plans, John. They are short, they're aggressive, and they are paid for by the insurance company to achieve that goal, to say you are good to go in eight weeks because we've had you rehabilitated and they, they actually call it work hardening. I've seen that. They're yeah. work hardening you so that you are ready to get back to work. Um, you know, now the insurance companies use conditioning, by the way, John. They're very clever with their words, too. But, but in any event, the point being that this is why they're putting Beth through this, why they're paying for this, is because they expect that she'll be good to go and back at work within eight weeks. What I don't want to see happen is that she's, in fact, not recovered, Um, She's suggesting that there's even more anxiety and that she has a family doctor involved. And so in a situation like that, I would also encourage her to have her own treatment, her own dedicated mental health treatment. Forget the occupational therapist from the insurance company. And I give the family doctor a lot of kudos, but I think it's time for that referral perhaps to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or even a social worker or counselor that can provide Beth with dedicated mental health support. Because what that does, John, is it achieves two things. Not only does it help Beth from a health perspective, but it also adds another practitioner, another expert to the mix to provide the support that she needs that she's not yet capable of returning back to work. It's another log on the fire, so to speak, from Beth and and the people who actually care about her It sounds like her husband is in that mix as well Mm. to support that she should remain off work until she's capable of returning. And so when I look at this kind of profile, I see it a lot. This is a tactic that works very successfully for insurers because you get these letters from these insurance companies, John, that says you must participate in the rehab. And when you are done in the rehab, you are returning back to work. We have contacted your employer. You are returning on this date, right? Like people feel very pressured because it seems like it's a foregone conclusion that this is already set and forgetting because the insurance company wants you to forget that your own doctor has the final say on what you're doing with yourself and your health. So that's really the bulk of her email, but she adds one other element to it, which is, look, my husband wants to take me away, right? He he wants to take me away. He wants to reduce my stress level, uh, change the scenery. 
And generally, we can absolutely understand that. That makes perfect sense to me that a week away would make a lot of good, do a lot of good for Beth. But she's not wrong in being weary of what an adjuster might do with information like that. They are looking for opportunities to conclude that she has a level of function that will allow her to work. Now, I, I don't know what kind of work Beth does, but given that it's a mental health condition and a mental health disability, insurance companies, because it's not like a broken arm, what they're looking for and grappling with is how is it that you can't work, but you can go and do all these other things. And travel is one of those things that has a very negative perception by adjusters and insurance companies yep. because it suggests that, well, you're going to go and you're going to have fun and you're going to talk to people and you're going to be on a plane and then you're going to be on a beach. Or you're going to be what, right? Like that's what we picture when we think of a week away um, and not imagining that maybe that's just a week at, a, at you know, the family cottage, John, by the lake with no one but her and her husband, right? That which, which you can see is vastly different than what I've described. So look, the conclusion is this. You want your doctors to endorse, to agree, to support that this is something that's acceptable and allowed. And if that is put in place, your adjuster insurance company is going to have a much harder time using that against you to deny your claim. So get the doctors on board, get the referrals out there, get the support that you need, continue on with the therapy, Beth. But if it gets to a point where the insurance company is, is cutting you off for the wrong reasons, then just know that you have rights to push back on the insurer and get the LTD benefits that you're entitled to. Beth, that's a good way to wrap up the show. We appreciate the uh, the email and continue on with that phone call, which I'm sure you will uh, very shortly to Tamar and her team as well. And we'll give it to you as we uh, as we walk out of here for another show. And that number is one 821 5900 Call that any time, as Tamar has mentioned several times throughout the hour. If you just need a, a basic chat, maybe some uh, some basic information. There's no charge just to pick up a phone and ask some questions. one 821 5900. We always go to the same email address. You can use help at disabilityrights.ca. It may appear on a future show, right? Get some answers here as well. There's mydisabilityquestions.com. And then finally, the newest website of the bunch, the trio of effective education when it comes to disability rights is pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. Take that out for a spin, pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show.